You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm thankful to, to be up here today. If you are new at the church, you, you may have not seen me for a few weeks up here. Uh, I've been been uh, been in the sidelines in the bullpen for a little while, but uh, we're back together for Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 15 and 16 today as we look at how Paul gets on this second missionary journey, uh, starting in the city, of, really of the city of Philippi. Now. This week, my wife and I were having a conversation in the car, and we, talk, we were talking about how, you know, we, we refer to people as kind of types of people a lot, right? Like different types of people kind of interact with different types of people. We think about it in relationship terms, like that person's not my type. And so we we're talking in the car, and we were reminiscing of the old days of high school and we didn't know each other in high school, and she was playing like a, a set list of songs from her days in, in high school. And, and she was like, do you know this one? Do you know this one? I'm like, no. She's like, do you know this one? I'm like, no. Like, I didn't listen to any of the same music you listened to. I was not in that kind of like punk rock, screamo. Like, I believe it. Abby loved that stuff back in the day. And so she finally turns to me and she says, we would not have dated in high school. (laughs) She just looks at me and she says, you were not my type. I'm thinking, wow, like that's a dose of reality, a dose of humility there. Praise God that we ended up together anyways, uh, despite that. Uh, but, but we often talk about the different types of people that we interact with, and probably the most famous way we do this, and you may have already guessed where I'm going with this, is the Enneagram. Ah, yes, the Enneagram. Uh, put that slide up there for us, Nick. Uh, many of you probably need to repent for how much you love the Enneagram, but uh, that's another story for another day, right? We, we talk about this Enneagram, this, this kind of map to self-discovery and personal growth with understanding our personality types and understanding who we are, and all of you right now are trying to guess who I am. I know you're, you're, you're sitting here piercing my soul trying to figure out which number I am, and we do this because it, it can reveal the particular weaknesses and strengths, our core fears and our core desires, and it may help us cope with a little bit more of who our personality is. But sometimes when we think about things like the Enneagram and how we segment people into different types, we begin to, to think, well, there are certain types that don't flow with others, and there are certain types that don't really work well with others, and there are certain numbers on the Enneagram that have conflict with others on the Enneagram, if you know what I'm saying, right? And there are certain that just don't quite cross paths. And sometimes it's easy for us to live in that kind of reality and that kind of mindset. But when we come to a text like this today, what we're reminded of the Christian faith that is so otherworldly is that there is no such thing as the Christian type. The gospel message, the message of Christianity, is for all types of people, for all numbers on the Enneagram, for all types of people on this earth. And what we're going to find in this text today is that reality just hits us in the face as God saves and redeems people from such different socioeconomic backgrounds, different genders, different classes, different ethnicities, reminding us that the gospel message is for all people. Said another world, we all said another way, we all need the gospel, and it meets every single one of us in our need. And so today we're going to study this truth as we look at Acts 15 and Acts 16. Now, by way of outline on the screen here, this is simply what we're going to look at. We're first going to see their journey to Philippi, which um, Noemi just read the kind of in-between passage that gets us to Philippi. We're going to see kind of how Paul and Silas and his dream team of missionaries make it to Philippi. And then we're going to focus in on the rest of Acts 16 and see the ministry that happens in Philippi, how the power of the gospel is going forth in this city. 
And so as we begin in verse 36, let's just set the stage a little bit for what's happened. Uh, At this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel go forth in power in different regions of the world. We saw it begin in Jerusalem, and we're going to see a slide just a moment of a map of where we're going. It began in Jerusalem, and it made its way all the way to what was known as really the ends of the earth, and what we're seeing on this map right now. And the gospel had been going out in power to these different regions, and then all of a sudden we get to Acts 15 last week, in which Ben talked about how they all stopped, it seemed like. Everything stopped, and everyone came back to Jerusalem for a council. And they came back to that council to get clarity on what the gospel message is to get precision on what is the gospel message. What, get it, let's get it right before we go back out on mission. And they get the gospel message right, that it's through the forgiveness and the grace alone of Jesus Christ and grace uh, of Jesus Christ's display on the cross that we have forgiveness of our sins. And through that message, they're then compelled to go back out on mission. We find that Paul and Silas are now going to their second missionary journey, which is here on the map. And if you go to the next slide, uh, Nick, you'll see that this is kind of the, uh, the map that we'd see of modern-day era of where he is going. So he's going to start in Antioch, the same place they started in last time, and they're going to make their way all the way this time to Europe and to Greece and almost to Bulgaria, really, onto the coast. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today in this story. So let's go ahead and look into the text at verse 36. It says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches." And so they're setting sail on this trip. They're leaving, they're departing from Antioch, the same place they departed on their first missionary journey. Uh, And then all of a sudden, uh, Paul decides, I'm not going to go to Cyprus, uh, where we started last time. And Barnabas wants to go to Cyprus, and he wants to bring along this man named John, who is also called Mark. And this begins to create a division, a sharp disagreement, a conflict about whether or not Mark should join them on this journey. And Paul cites in Acts 13, we read that John Mark, he abandoned them in Pamphylia. We don't really know all the details of why he did that, uh, but it was obviously significant enough where Paul wanted to make his case here. He wanted to make his stand in saying that John Mark should not go with them. And so through this sharp disagreement, what ends up happening? Well, Paul chooses Silas, and they head in a different direction, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and they head towards Cyprus. Now, what's interesting about the text is the text doesn't say who was right or wrong in this argument. Right? Maybe that leaves some tension in some of our souls. Like We just want to know like, who was right in this argument. But it doesn't say that, right? It doesn't give a who is right or who is wrong. But I think it does point out some things that we can learn from as we think of our own disagreements we might have with people. I think the first thing we really learn from this is that Paul and Barnabas are mortal men just like us. Right? Oftentimes we talk about these giants of the faith and we think, man, they, they were just perfect, right? Like They never made a mistake. And here we have the guy who is called the son of encourager Barnabas and the greatest teacher and missionary of the New Testament in Paul. And these guys have a sharp conflict, a disagreement with one another. They love one another. They've been through it all together. And yet they're still coming to this place where they have a disagreement, which I think is a dose of reality for us that guess what? There will be at times where we will have disagreements with people. There will be at times where we will have sharp disagreements with people. 
Now, the beauty of the Bible, we're not going to go through details of this, but if you see in the letters to Timothy, Paul is later reconciled with John Mark. And it actually says that he's incredibly useful to his ministry. And so there's reconciliation, which is the end game of any disagreement we might find with a brother and sister in Christ. But it's a dose of reality here that sometimes we will have conflict in this life. But the second thing is that God sovereignly uses this conflict for the sake of his mission. You see, they didn't, they didn't divide and then one not continue on preaching the gospel. They, just, they chose to depart and go separate ways, but in their going on separate ways, they continued to fulfill the calling on their lives as missionaries, as ministers of the gospel. And in this moment, what ends up happening is there are two mission teams being sent out now. There are two mission teams accomplishing the purposes of God, that he works sovereignly sometimes in our disagreements, in our conflict. And we continue to see that they continue with the message of the gospel. Let's go now to Acts 16 and continue to see this journey. Paul then comes also to Derby and to Lystra, and at Lystra he meets this young disciple named Timothy. Timothy is described here as the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, which is kind of implying there that his father most likely was not a believer. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered uh, to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, meaning what happened last uh, week as we studied Acts 15. And verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. And so we see Paul meets this young disciple named Timothy. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, uh, these guys create an incredible bond with one another. Timothy becomes like a son to Paul. Uh, he is mentored by Paul. Uh, Timothy is one of a, of a Jewish mother who is a believer. And in that, he most likely professed faith, perhaps when Paul came through on his first missionary journey preaching the gospel. And Paul asked Timothy to join his mission team here. Paul becomes this mentor figure to Timothy. He believes in Timothy. He's impressed by this young man named Timothy. But in order for him to join, he has to do something pretty unusual, right? He says, you got to be circumcised. And uh, somehow I've, I've avoided all the circumcision passages up to this point, but today it's not avoidable. <laughs> it's a pretty unusual thing, right? And in fact, this may be the most unusual conversation in the history of a mentor relationship, right? I mean, here Timothy is saying, I, I want to go with you. And Paul's like, hey, come with me, shadow me, learn from me. And Timothy's like, this sounds great. This is like a dream come true. Love to do this. And Paul's like, oh, by the way, you got to be circumcised. If I was Timothy, I'd probably be like, mm, uh, Lystra's uh, community college sounds like a good, good role for me. <laughs> I'll, I'm fine. I'll stay behind, right? Now, what is happening here? Because last week, as, as Ben was walking us through uh, Acts 15, we learned that, that circumcision was not necessary. It was not necessary to become a Christian. In other words, you didn't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. You didn't have to, to profess faith in the Jewish uh, kind of law to become a Christian. That's what we discussed last week with getting clarity on the gospel message. So what is happening here? Why is Paul saying to Timothy, you need to be circumcised? Well, I think it's quite simple, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but he's not saying this for means of salvation. He's not saying this in order for, for Timothy to believe in the gospel message. He's saying this for the sake of mission. You see, he knows that because Timothy's mom is Jewish, even though his dad is Greek, his, his ethnicity was Jewish because the, the ethnicity of a person was, was through their line of their mother, the lineage of their mother. And so here we have this guy who's an uncircumcised Jew traveling with Paul. And where does Paul go every city that he, he goes in? Where's the first place he goes to? The synagogue. 
And how is Timothy going to go as an uncircumcised Jew into these places to proclaim the gospel? Well, he's not. And so here we see Paul is making a decision, and he's asking, he's compelling Timothy to follow him for the sake of mission. And so Timothy goes through with this procedure so that they can continue on mission and proclaiming the gospel to the Jews. And I think really what this reminds us of is what Paul later says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that he will become all things to all people, that by all means he might save some. In other words, there are times where we can lay down cultural preferences for the sake of the gospel. There are times where perhaps we may go into someone's home and we may wear a robe or a hat, or we might go into a particular custom and abide by their hospitality rules in order to proclaim the gospel. And this text reminds us that if it's not something that is directly causing us to sin or compromising our faith, we should be willing to lay those preferences down for the sake of the gospel to go forward. It's like this past Friday, we were at a wedding, and uh, my wife was on the dance floor, and she was trying to compel me to get on the dance floor, and I do not like dancing. And uh, she kind of hinted at this. She was like, we got to become all things to all people, Wesley. I'm like, no, i got <laughs> to draw a line in the sand every now and then, guys. you got to draw the line in the sand every now and then. Uh, but here we have Timothy, and he's, he's willing to, to make this, this sacrifice for the sake of the gospel because he wants the desire, the same desire as Paul, to see all types of people come to know him. And so then we get to verse 6, and they begin on this trek. Now they have their, their dream team of missionaries. You have Luke with them. You have Paul. You have Silas. You have Timothy. And they want to go to Asia. And as Noemi just read, they were blocked from going to Asia by the Holy Spirit. And then they decide, well, let's go north and see if we can go there. And so they head north. And what happens? The Spirit of Jesus blocks them, right? It's like that uh, Geico commercial with Matumbo who's just blocking everything. That's what I think of, right? It's like everywhere they go, God's like, nope, block. <laughs> like, can't go there. Nope, can't go there. And then we see that finally there's this vision of this Macedonian man. And it's very clear where God wants them to go. And in this vision, this man is compelling them to come and help us in Macedonia. And so Paul concludes that God has opened this door for them to go to Macedonia and they make their way to the city of Philippi. Now, I think this, this little section in between is, is really incredible, and it's, it's a reminder for us that God sometimes closes doors in our lives, but he's also the same one who opens new doors for us. And there are times when we don't know the circumstances of why he closes doors or even why he forbid them to go to certain areas with the gospel message in this passage, but we do know is that they trusted his good purpose. And we do know that there was rationale behind this. It wasn't just circumstantial. They came to reason in their minds that God had called them to preach the gospel in Philippi. He had opened up that door by way of shutting others. And so when doors shut in our lives, we should not despair. Continue to trust that the Lord who shuts those doors is opening other doors for us to walk in and to walk by faith. And so they get to this city of Philippi. And we see here in Philippi, it's a leading city of the district similar to a place like Washington, D.C., is an urban center. It's a place of commerce and trade. And then we see the ministry that is happening in this city. Now, what we're going to see in this particular city as Paul and Silas, as they kind of they stay there for many days and they kind of set their foot down in Philippi, we're going to see three different characters in the rest of this chapter. In each character, the gospel comes to in a different light, in a different way. We're going to see how the gospel and power moves through this text into these three different characters. And the first person we meet is Lydia. Let's read in verse 13. It says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. And these women who had come together, it says verse 14, One 
who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so we meet this woman named Lydia. She's this professional businesswoman. She's a seller of purple. She's a transplant in Philippi. She's not originally from Philippi, but she's kind of transplanted her life there. She's incredibly successful. And we can pick up on that she's successful because if you get to the end of the chapter, you'll see that the whole church now is gathering in her home. Right. And if you look, we live in D.C. OK, if a church plant can gather in your home, you're doing pretty well for yourself. Right. Like you got a big enough space for a church to gather. You're doing pretty well. She's a successful business person. If we were to think of how to apply this to modern day, Lydia would be a young urban professional transplant in D.C., probably have like a high end boutique in Georgetown. Right. She's living the good life. She's very successful. She's savvy, but she's also considered a worshiper of God. And this was a very technical term. It's the term God fear. It's a Gentile who has given up their pagan ways, who, has, who have given up the philosophies of the day, who have given up polytheism, and have started reading and seeking the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, and trying to understand who this God is. And so how does the gospel come to this woman, Lydia? Well, the gospel comes in this Bible study of sorts, <laughs> this prayer meeting that they're having, this small group gathering by the river. And Paul walks in, and he begins to just open up his mouth and speak the word of God. And what happens? The Lord opens up her heart, and she believes. You see, here is a woman who has foregone the, 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 the strategies of this world, the philosophies of this world. The, Epicureanism and, and the, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics and their philosophies were empty to this woman. They were hopeless to this woman. And she had abandoned those philosophies and had pursued religion in the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. And what she needed to know in this moment was the grace of God. That in her pursuit, God loved her and that God forgave her. And the text says that her heart is open to the Lord as she's seeking him. Now this reminds us that when we see people who are spiritually sensitive to the Bible, when we see people who are seeking God, who are trying to actively pursue God uh, in their life, that the one thing that we can do for that person is exactly what Paul did, open up God's word and allow the Lord to open up their heart. It's a beautiful reminder for us that when we're seeking God, we come to his word. And when we see other people who are seeking him and are trying to understand truth, the way where we drive them is to God's word and allow him to do the work in their hearts. And Lydia in her household is baptized and saved. And then we get to our second character in the story, and that is this demonic slave girl who is by no means going to attend their small group, right? Verse 16. And we were going to the place of prayer We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed. I love that, right? It's not like Paul's like, I have compassion and grace on this woman. Like he's like, he's just annoyed. And he turns and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so we meet our second character in the story and she is spiritually and socially oppressed. This young girl is impoverished. She's in the slums. She's weak. If we were to try to think of someone in a modern-day application, this would be a very sad story. It would be someone who perhaps is a drug addict, a prostitute, enslaved to a pimp, controlled by a pimp. 
And it says that this slave girl, she not only is impoverished, she not only is socially oppressed, but she is spiritually oppressed as well. She has the spirit of divination in her, which means she has the spirit of a python. And if you're, if you're not up to date on your Greek ethics or mythology, you probably wonder, well, what, what, what is the spirit of a python? Right? The spirit of the python was, was a representative of the python which guarded the temple of Apollos. And they said if you had the spirit of a python, then you would have the, the kind of the special powers to be clairvoyant. You could predict the future of sorts. You could make prophecies. And so we see that these owners are making a fortune off of this woman. They're making a fortune off of her clairvoyance, of her ability to make these pro- uh, prophecies. And instead of having pity on her for this bizarre and really tormented behavior that is happening to her, they're using her to make money. They're abusing her by using her. And she's going around behind Paul and Silas, and she's shrieking, you can imagine, shrieking with a loud voice, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, here's the question. She's speaking truth, right? The question is, is she attracted to them, or is she attacking them? Right? Is she, actually, is she announcing who they are, or is she trying to denounce who they are? And I think it's both. I think what we see here is someone who is tormented inside. It reminds me of a Lord of the Rings character, and yes, for two sermons in a row, I'm going to cite Lord of the Rings, the character Gollum. And if you're familiar with Gollum, he has this inner dialogue throughout the movies because he's controlled, he's enslaved to this passion and this desire for the ring of power. And it causes him to, to always waver between these two personalities. He can't quite figure out what is the truth. In the same way, it seems as if this young lady who is tormented inside hates the light, but yet she's also speaking truth and loving the light. It's like she hates the truth, but she's also loving the truth. It's like she yearns for them, but she also is mad at them. And it's true of all of us, right? In moments in life when we actually know the truth and yet we don't follow it, it's that inner dialogue of knowing what is truth, but yet feeling like we're captive, feeling like we're enslaved by something else that is drawing us away from the truth. And this young woman is captive by lies and demonic oppression. So how does the gospel come to her? Well, as it says again, Paul was so annoyed by what was happening that he turns around and he cast out the oppressive spirits and made her well. In other words, what this girl needed was God to powerfully intervene in her life. You see, Lydia was a good person who was kind of just stuck between the emptiness of philosophy and the burden of religion. And what she really needed to know was something rational, that God loved her and that God forgave her. But this, little, this slave girl did not just need to know the message of forgiveness. She needed a new Lord. She needed a new master. She needed someone who could break the chains of her enslavement. And there's only one who can do that. And it's the power of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, sometimes when we hear stories like this, we think this is bizarre. Like, this sounds completely otherworldly. Like, how can we find any application to our own lives? But oftentimes when we read the New Testament, when we read stories like this in the Bible, of people who are socially or economically oppressed or someone who is spiritually oppressed like this slave girl, it's not just a historical figure we're reading about. It's also a parable for what happens in the human heart. It's a parable for us of what happens in our hearts. Because the Bible is clear, and even in life, we can just think about this in terms of what we love in life, that none of us are truly in total control of our lives. We're controlled by what we love most, by what is most important to us. We live for what we're controlled by. 
if we live for the approval of other people, then guess what? We're going to be controlled by what they say about us and those who love us. If we live for power, that what really matters to us, then we'll be controlled by it. We'll have to do things to either keep the power that we have or to gain more power. If we live for our career, then we'll do whatever it takes to stay in that career, even if it means compromising on our integrity. In other words, we're not really in control of our lives. We're controlled by the Lord of our life. And the Lord of our life is whatever we love most. It's whatever we desire most. It's whatever at this moment is most important to us. And the net message of, of this text is if it's not Jesus, if it's not him, the one who is the Lord of our lives, then it's other things controlling us and driving us and enslaving us. You see, apart from the supernatural intervention of Jesus, we are just as captive to the power of sin as this young lady. But yet, Jesus comes on the scene in the gospel, and he displays his power on the cross, and he enters into the imprisonment of darkness so that we can experience the marvelous light of his gospel. He takes the beating of, of, of the stripes on his back so that we can be clothed with the robe of righteousness as a true son or daughter of God. He takes the burden of sins on his own shoulders so that we can experience the gentleness of forgiveness. That's what he has done for the slave girl, and that's what he does for us in the gospel. He alone is the one who can free us from spiritual slavery. And then finally, we meet our third character, the Philippian jailer. Now, just kind of summarizing the text between what's happening here, when they cast out the demons of this girl, she no longer has that clairvoyant power anymore within her. And so these guys who are making money off of her for fortune telling are obviously pretty upset, right? They just lost their business. And so what do they do? Well, they, they cause a ruckus, and they go to the magistrate, and they get the magistrate involved. And the next thing you know, we pick up verse 22, and the crowd's joining in, and they're attacking Paul and Silas. And the magistrate tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And then we meet our friend, the Philippian jailer. They ordered this jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, verse 24, it says, He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling in fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, he said, and they said to them, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So we meet this jailer who was most likely probably an ex-military. Uh, most likely those who would get the jobs as jailers were Roman soldiers who would retire. And so you can imagine this guy's probably in his late 40s, early 50s, uh, he'd probably be really good at this job as someone who was ex-military. If we were thinking about someone in modern day, this is a blue-collar guy, a tough guy who served uh, in the military, but now he's serving in a, in a civil servant duty to kind of pay off uh, his retirement, his pension. And here we have this man. And what we know about him uh, from the text is that he's a pretty brutal guy. right? Notice that he's given the orders to keep them safely in the prison, but that's not what he does necessarily. He doesn't just keep them safe in the prison. No, he takes them to the inner prison. And he fashions their feet in stocks. He doesn't bandage their wounds so they were just beaten. 
He doesn't try to help them in any way. He puts them in the inner cell where there will be no air, no light exposure, and then he fashions them with stocks. And these are not the kind of stocks that you take silly photos at at the medieval times, right? I mean, this, these, this is a real form of torture where they would splay the limbs way out past where they should be. It would be incredibly painful. Leg cramps, muscle cramps, sitting there in darkness, half beaten to death. So how does the gospel come to this man who is so brutal in this moment? You see, it's different than how the gospel came to Lydia or even the slave girl. Paul saw Lydia as someone who was seeking truth and spoke truth to her. And then Paul saw this, this young slave girl was, uh, was oppressed and spoke the power of Jesus over her. But here we don't see Paul using words primarily to reach this jailer. In fact, what reaches this jailer is the lives displayed in Paul and Silas. It's how the power of the gospel was displayed in their lives. You see, this jailer in this story, he, he witnesses two things. He witnesses otherworldly joy and otherworldly love and forgiveness. Otherworldly joy in the face of suffering and otherworldly love and forgiveness in the face of his own cruelty. You see, in the text, we see Paul and Silas, who, who by all accounts have lost everything or in excruciating pain, and they should be wailing, they should be complaining, they didn't get a fair trial, all the things were going against them, but that's not what they're doing. They're singing. They're praising God. They're praying, and they have the attention of the entire prison. And this man who was cruel to them, he sees what is happening, and this earthquake comes, and he sees that everything has blown open, the doors, the chains have fallen off of people, and he is freaking out because he knows that in this honor-shame culture that there is death, execution coming his way if these prisoners escape. So what does he do? He draws his sword, and he is ready to take his own life at this very present moment. And then Paul speaks up. And notice it's not just that Paul and Silas did not leave. They compelled everyone else not to leave. And this jailer comes to them, and he, he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. And I can imagine in that moment, he realized how cruel he had been to them. I can imagine in that moment, he's realizing shaking and trembling because he has just seen the power of their guard through an earthquake and the power of God displayed in their lives. And these two men, Paul and Silas, had every opportunity to get back at this guy, at every opportunity this moment to get back at him. But they take a hold of their opportunity to allow good to overcome evil in this moment. They take a hold of their opportunity to treat the merciless with mercy, to treat this wicked man with kindness, to forgive him, and he was amazed. You see, the gospel has come to this guy because he saw the power of God displayed in their lives, in the way in which they suffered, in the way in which they handled persecution, and all he can say is, I need this God. He realizes in this moment that there is something missing in his life. There is a power that is missing to overcome this world in his life. There is something that he has seen displayed in the earthquake in the lives of Paul and Silas that he wants, he's attracted to. And he asks a question that at one point in life we all ask, how can I be rescued? Like, I realize there is something I am missing. How can I have relationship with your God, Paul? How can I be saved? And Paul gives him the gospel answer. It is through belief in the one who's done it all for you, Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you will be rescued. 
not just him, his whole household. And what do we see from this jailer? We see something incredible happen to him. He begins to be compassionate in this moment. The gospel takes root in his heart, and he was once cruel, and now he's bandaging up their wounds and taking them to his house. And this man who was once isolated is now drawn into a community of faith with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just have a few takeaways in conclusion from this chapter that I think will help us as we think about how does the gospel go forth to all types of people? And here they are. Number one, the gospel is for everybody. We made the statement at the beginning. This passage reminds us that everyone needs the gospel. We don't say, well, there are some people who need it. We're some people who are the Christian type because there is no Christian type, as we said already. Christianity is not just for the conservative type nor for the liberal type. It's not just for the broken or for the moral. It can change anyone. It's for everyone. And you know why it's for everyone? Because it's truth for everyone. You see, we live in a society and a culture that says, well, if it's truth for you, if it works for you, then it's true for you. That's not how Christianity works. And Christianity is not true, and it doesn't work for us unless the truth about Jesus' resurrection and the world are true. It won't work for us unless it is truth. And if it is truth, then it is truth for everyone. And if what Jesus did actually happened, and he is resurrected and ascended into heaven and one day return, then it is true for all people. And that means that this gospel message that has gone forth in this city for these distinct people can change anybody in this city. But not only is it for everybody, but the gospel is also the most unifying power on the earth. There is no power on this planet that can bring a diverse group of humans together better than the gospel. I love at the end of this passage, it says that Paul and Silas, after they come out of prison, prison, where do they go? They go to Lydia's house and where they met with the brothers and the sisters and encouraged them. What do you see at the end of the story? You see a community of diverse people worshiping the same Lord. You see a group of people who would probably never cross paths now coming together to worship Jesus. We've said this before. Uh, we, we've, we've alluded to this old Jewish prayer that uh, many Jewish males would, would pray around the time of Jesus. It's a very traditional prayer. It's, a, it's incredibly condescending. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly not, not politically correct in any way. But Jewish males would, would sometimes pray this, O oh Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And God has the audacity to build his church on these three classes of people. A woman, Lydia a demonic slave girl, and a Gentile soldier. The Bible reminds us that pedigree means nothing when it comes to the gospel. Social class means nothing when it comes to the gospel. When God says you are mine, it doesn't matter whether you're good or bad or strong or weak or whatever your background is. It doesn't matter because it's by his grace that we enter into his family. And it's his grace that brings a unique family of people together who otherwise might even despise each other. (laughs) Different races, different social classes, different personality types, different everything are now brothers and sisters in the same family. And if we read the news cycles, as often as they do, cause division in our society here in D.C., we're reminded that it's the gospel. And as we live out this gospel, King's Church, that we can see the most unifying power on the earth, the one thing that can truly bring us together. And then finally, we see that the gospel is true freedom. 
You know, it's kind of interesting at the end of this passage, we didn't really read this part, but in verses 35 through 38, Paul, Paul then goes, after he, he goes back to the magistrate, he begins to put some fear in the magistrate's heart because he reminds the magistrate that, hey, you beat us, but we were actually Roman citizens. <laughs> and that's illegal what you did, right? And, and it struck some fear into the core of this magistrate's heart. And I can imagine he'd think twice about uh, arresting Christians from here on out in Philippi after this. Because a Roman citizen would have certain rights, they would have certain privileges, and what happened to Paul and Silas was wrong. It was undeserved. It was illegal. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did Paul bring this up at the end of the story? Like, why didn't Paul tell the magistrate the first time, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, and avoid the beating, and avoid going to jail, and avoid the persecution that happened? Why did he now bring this up at the end? I think it's brilliant leadership on Paul's part here. See, I think Paul went to prison for the sake of his people. And probably not even knowing at the moment, he went to prison for the sake of this jailer's life. You see, Paul understood something incredibly brilliant in this story. And it's so beautiful for us. That the one who had real freedom in this story was the one who was in chains. The one who had real freedom in the story was the one who was in the stocks, but singing. Even though he was in chains physically, he was displaying something incredibly powerful for us. That in Christ, we are free, despite what situations and circumstances we find ourselves. You see, if the meaning of your life, if your greatest love of your life, if the greatest hope in your life is in other things, your career, your relationship, status, health, whatever it may be, if those things were to go away, because suffering comes in this life, and they can devastate those things we hold so closely to our lives, if these things are taken away, where is our hope? But if the main thing that we build our life on is God, his love, if our foundation is in his hope that he has through Jesus Christ, if he's the meaning of our lives, if he's where we find our self-satisfaction and worth, then we realize here something beautiful, that suffering, no matter what amount it is, it can actually hurt us. It can't touch us because it can't take away what is most precious to us. And Paul here, though he was in chains, he was absolutely free. And the jailer, though that he was free and had the keys and the sword, he was actually the one who was enslaved. Paul reminds us here that we are free because of Christ, who gave up his life so that we could be liberated, who came to set us free. There is true freedom today in the gospel. If you want freedom, if you want to live a life of joy and hope and happiness, it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel can free us. It can change anyone. Jesus is beautiful enough to captivate Lydia's heart. He's powerful enough to save the slave girl. And he's practical enough for the jailer. And he's enough for our needs today. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.